This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. This year's EASD annual meeting, which took place virtually between the 21st and 25th of September, was packed with exciting new developments in data across the spectrum of diabetes care, from new outcomes trials with SGLT2 inhibitors through to novel therapeutics such as a once-weekly insulin. With this in mind, we reached out to three leading specialists in the field to hear their personal highlights from this three-day congress, beginning with EASD Senior Vice President, Professor Chantal Mathieu. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Mathieu. Uh, So for our listeners who couldn't attend the session, could you please quickly summarize the key findings of DAPA-CKD? Well, the key findings of of DAPA-CKD is that we have now in a population of people with type 2 diabetes and people uh, without type 2 diabetes, a, a clear evidence that you have protection by an SGLT2 inhibitor, namely uh, dapagliflozin, against progression towards uh, severe renal endpoints when you start off with already an impaired renal function, namely uh, an EGFR uh, that is uh, as low as 25 uh, milliliters per minute and having a range of albuminuria between um, uh, 200 and uh, 5,000 milligrams, so a a very broad spread. So DAPA-glyphlosin protects uh, against hard endpoints. What are these hard endpoints? It's a composite of um, needing replacement therapy, so dialysis or transplantation, having a um, a sustained... um, uh, decline of EGFR of more than 50% uh, or dying from renal causes or dying from cardiovascular causes. And all of that together was reduced by uh, 39% in those receiving dapagliflozin 10 milligrams compared to uh, placebo. So a dramatic impact. And what was important is that this impact was seen as well in people with type 2 diabetes as those without uh, type 2 diabetes. So this is really a revolution now for uh, the class of SGLT2 inhibitors uh, with here the the evidence for uh, dapagliflozin, opening up not only the perspective to uh, protecting against hospitalization for heart failure and mortality in that population with type 2 or without type 2, but also now protecting against um, adverse renal outcomes in individuals with um, uh, uh, renal disease. Wonderful, thank you. And speaking of cardiovascular outcomes, the results of Emperor Reduced were also presented at this year's meeting, which saw similar results to DAPA-HF from last year. That is, empagliflozin was also associated with cardioprotection in people with heart failure with or without diabetes. Given both trials and also DAPA-CKD, can we expect to see SGLT2 inhibitors being used in people without diabetes, both in heart failure and CKD? Absolutely. I think when several years ago we um, uh, got this class of agents in our hands as endocrinologists, uh, we were impressed by the glucose lowering, the um, uh, blood pressure lowering, and the weight lowering effect of these agents that we consider to be 
as GLT2 inhibitors, namely the glucose uh, uh, transport in the kidney. So we saw them as glucosuric uh, agents and tools that could be used as glucose lowering tools. Now we have evidence in people with uh, type 2 diabetes, but also uh, in individuals um, without type 2 diabetes, that they are much more than just glucose-lowering agents. Indeed, they uh, affect in a dramatic way the risk of hospitalization for heart failure, in particular in those who have pre-existing heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. When we look at um, the uh, protection against hospitalization for heart failures in the big cardiovascular outcome trials like Emporeg uh, and Canvas and Declare, we see reductions of hospitalization for heart failure by more than 30%. But now we have DAPA-HF, we have Emperor reduced, indicating that also in people without type 2 diabetes, the same protection happens against hospitalization for heart failure and in DAPA-HF also against uh, mortality. When you apply these agents to people with a reduced ejection fraction, but without type 2 diabetes. And now we have the data, again, from uh, many, many studies uh, showing renal protection. We knew this from uh, the uh, data, again, from the big cardiovascular outcome trials showing a reduction in relevant renal endpoints of uh, 30 40% in people with type 2 diabetes. We had the Credence study specifically in individuals with type 2 diabetes and renal disease, showing again a, a dramatic reduction uh, up to 30% in these relevant renal endpoints. But now we have DAPA CKD going beyond people with type 2 diabetes, again showing a more than 30% reduction in individuals without type 2 diabetes, but with renal disease against progression towards adverse renal outcomes. So in my commentary of the DAPA-CKD study in the ESD, I said, we have now many professions claiming the property of the SGLT2 inhibitors. We have the endocrinologist, we have the cardiologist, we have the uh, nephrologist. But what we need to remember is that we have to approach a patient in a holistic way. And also think of primary care, who are the ones who treat the majority of people uh, living with type 2 diabetes, but also those with heart failure and chronic kidney disease. And so we need to help primary care understand the benefit of this class of agents in being good glucose-lowering agents, in being exceptional agents in individuals with um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, whether they have type 2 diabetes or not, and also in individuals with chronic kidney disease, whether they have type 2 diabetes or not. Thank you. That neatly brings us on to our last question. How should these data influence treatment decisions in people with diabetes? When looking at the ADA-ESD um, consensus statement, uh, it is clear that we say the uh, person living with type 2 diabetes should be at the centre of all decisions. Lifestyle intervention should be central, namely losing weight when there is overweight and also um, exercise, stopping smoking, etc. Applying a multifactorial approach with statins, with blood pressure control, and then let yourself be guided by the characteristics of the patient. If comorbidities in the person with type 2 diabetes, like heart failure, like atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or chronic kidney disease are present, 
then these overrule all decisions. And then it becomes clear that next to the baseline of metformin, there should be, independent of hemoglobin A1C, the addition of a GLP-1 receptor agonist with evidence if atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is on the forefront, or again, the presence of an SGLT2 inhibitor with evidence when heart failure or chronic kidney disease is on the forefront. In all of those where these comorbidities are not present, then we suggest that the clinician uh, is led by uh, the hemoglobin A1C. So multifactorial approach, lifestyle, metformin, and then when hemoglobin A1C is still above 7%, add other agents, depending on whether avoiding hypoglycemia is the priority, avoiding weight gain is the priority, or whether cost is really the priority. And then we suggest uh, the different agents to be used. But again, the SGLT2 inhibitors, the GLP-1 receptor agonists have a very prominent place in all of the decisions. And so the most important thing is to have the patient involved in the decision, you know, discuss, do you want an injectable, for instance, once a week, or do you want an extra uh, oral medication? And also avoid clinical inertia. When you have a very high hemoglobin A1C, we suggest that you start immediately with combination therapy and not delay intensification of therapy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Mathieu. It was my pleasure. And I honestly hope that all of my colleagues have uh, taken many, many messages away from ESD. But may the main message be that we have to be very proactive in treating our patients with diabetes in order to prevent adverse outcomes. Thank you. Next, we join Dr. Tim Heiser for a discussion of novel insulins. It's lovely to speak to you again, Dr. Heiser. So first of all, the first trials evaluating the safety and efficacy of once-weekly insulin ICODAC were presented at the Congress. For those who didn't attend these sessions, could you quickly summarize the key findings of these studies? Yeah, of course. Um, so there, there were several trials presented. Um, the first trial was a pharmacology trial where basically people uh, were treated with uh, insulin icodec and um, then uh, the effect, the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effects were evaluated at steady state uh, in comparison to uh, insulin glargine and, uh, sorry, insulin degludec. And uh, you could clearly uh, see that there is a buildup in the effect, but a very smooth um profile over the uh, in at steady state with insulin uh, icodec. Uh, basically, the effect levels only fluctuated very slightly if you looked um, into the area under the curves. Um, the, uh, th there was little change over a one-week treatment interval. The study was a bit difficult to do because of, obviously you can't do a clamp over one week. So basically, uh, we, we did a clamp at the beginning uh, of uh, the week and then towards the end. And overall, then these results were uh, used to model the effect over a one-week treatment interval. And as I said, there, there really was uh, very little deviation of having uh, about one set of the effect on, on one treatment day.
So that basically confirmed that uh, insulin Icodec could be used over a one-week treatment interval, and the peak trough fluctuations over this one-week interval is very low. It, it is probably um, comparable to what we see with other basal insulins over the treatment interval of one day. Um, there were still, of course, a, a number of questions with um, remaining after this pharmacology trial. We there, there was no clear dose relationship in this uh, in pharmacodynamics, but in pharmacokinetics that there was, and uh, of course you don't know how to start treatment uh, with with the once weekly insulin. It will obviously take a number of weeks before you reach steady state. So it was very important to look into a more clinical setting, and this was done in two trials. Um, which I think were pretty similar. These were trials in people um, with type 2 diabetes, uh, and you could, uh, and they were treated um, over uh, three months, if I recall correctly, uh, with insulin icodec, and uh, they um, then evaluated HB1C hypoglycemia, and and uh, the the usual outcomes for glycemic controls, and. Uh, I think the results were really promising. So there were no uh, real differences in HbA1c between Icodec and incident Largine. If anything, uh, HbA1c was numerically lower with incident Icodec in, in both of the studies, uh, but this didn't reach statistical significance. There was no real difference in um, Severe hypoglycemia uh, in, in one of the studies, there, there was a, a higher incidence uh, of uh, minor hypoglycemia with insulin icodec, but this wasn't confirmed in, in the other trial. So overall, I think these study results very clearly show that insulin icodec can be used in type 2 patients, uh, can be successfully used, so they could basically uh, initiate treatment with a once weekly insulin. Uh, one of the studies was particularly interesting because there uh, a, a loading dose was used. So basically people injected twice the usual dose with the first injection and therefore were very close to a steady state already at the second injection. And that uh, overall uh, shows that, that you can have workarounds um, for the long time to reach steady state. Yeah, so overall, I think uh, in, in type 2 patients, these study results nicely show that once weekly insulin can be successfully used in patients with type 2 diabetes. Thank you. Now, it's still very early to say, but assuming similar results to these phase 2 trials are observed in the ongoing phase 3 trials, what role can we predict once weekly insulins to play in managing type 2 diabetes? Yeah, of course, the, the real hope is that uh, it is that it is much more than a convenience thing. I mean, the HbA1c results were promising. As I said, they didn't reach statistical significance, um, but uh, that might change in, in a phase three setting. But the real promise, I think, is uh, that patients are willing to start insulin therapy much earlier uh, with a once-weekly insulin, so one injection per week 
might really be acceptable to many more patients than currently is a once daily injection. Um, and uh, we know that there is a lot of inertia both at uh, uh, on, the, on the patient side, but also on the physician side. Uh, and with the once weekly insulin, uh, the barrier to start insulin uh, therapy might be much lower. That's the hope. And that's, of course, very hard to test in randomized clinical trials. Um, so we need perhaps better uh, study designs to really tease that out. Um, but of course, the most important and, and first step will be to show that uh, the once weekly insulin is a viable option with regard to glycemic control and hypoglycemia. Thank you. And looking even further ahead, can we expect to see a fixed ratio combination of once weekly insulin with a once weekly GLP-1 receptor agonist? Or would the dose increments be too complicated with these two individual agents? Yeah, of course, we, we need to see uh, results, but uh, it is known that uh, there are already uh, that, that trials with the combinations of uh, once-weekly insulins or ICODEC and once-weekly uh, GLP-1s uh, like semaglutide have been started. Results have not yet been provided, but that, of course, would be uh, another ultimate goal. Um, we now know that uh, basal insulin might be a good start. GLP-1s might also be a good start in many people with uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, but ultimately, many patients will need a combination of basal insulin support and prandial insulin support. And uh, with the GLP-1s, you could have the prandial support uh, and if this all can be combined in a once-weekly injection, that would be ideal. I myself think this should be feasible. Um, I mean, we know that for once-daily um, compounds, it was feasible to combine, uh, for instance, Lyraglutide and Degludec, uh, and that uh, worked very well in, in many patients. And I wouldn't see any reasons why this shouldn't be possible for uh, once weekly compounds, uh, that the study designs are a bit more difficult of obviously a loading dose uh, with uh, a GLP-1 combination would be very difficult. So it might take a bit longer to reach steady state, but after four to five weeks, I would think you, you should be able to get very nice results with once weekly combinations too. Marvelous, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Heiser. I, I thank you. I, I really enjoyed this short podcast, and I'm sure there will be uh, an update in the not-too-distant future with more results on once-weekly insulins or once-weekly combinations of GLP-1s and, and insulin. And finally, we join Professor Carol LaRue for a discussion of the top-line results of the first four STEP trials, as well as a discussion of metabolic-associated fatty liver disease, also known as MAFLD. Thank you for joining us today, Professor LaRue. So our first question, the top line results of the first four STEP trials were presented during the annual meeting. For our listeners who didn't view these presentations, could you quickly summarize the key findings of these trials? So what we have seen with these regulatory trials that were set up specifically to allow semaglutide 2.4 milligrams to gain regulatory approval from the FDA and the EMA is what we see is 
incredibly impressive results. Um, on average, patients in the active treatment arm where they received uh, semaglutide 2.4 milligrams lost in excess of 16% of their total body weight. And as we would expect, um, if we add in a more intensive behavior therapy program, then we can get up to 17 or 18 percent average weight loss. And of course, if we focus only on those patients who are so-called responders, we can get another additional weight loss. So um, on average, we are seeing 16, 17, 18 percent weight loss throughout the step one to step four program. But we have to delve a little bit deeper. And when we look at the so-called responders and the super responders, now for the first time, we are seeing that almost 30 or 40% of patients are able to lose 20% of their body weight. Um, now, that is a game changer because a 20% body weight loss, we not only see an improvement in functionality, the ability for people just to tie their shoelaces or to get up from the ground when they play with their children, which drives quality of life, but we also see a reversal of complications. So we can expect in future studies to see a reversal of chronic kidney disease, of NASH, of uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that is what is so exciting about the current um, programs that is being reported. Thank you. And the STEP trials are evaluating once-weekly injectable smaglutide. But will the findings of these bear any relevance to the once-daily oral formulation? Yes, I think that it's um, there will be um, important learnings that we can take between the injectable treatment of 2.4 milligrams and the oral somatotide doses. Um, of course, what we have the advantage with injectable treatments, it's only once a week, um, is that we are far better at delivering exactly the dose that we are interested in. With the oral formulations, um, we have very good technology to deliver the semaglutide, but again, our therapeutic window may be a little bit changed, if you could imagine, uh, because it may be challenging to give those high doses in an oral formulation. So we are waiting that data. Um, but I think the oral formulations are more similar to the one milligram semaglutide doses that we use for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, uh, which is still very, very impressive. Um, but more is awaited to see if we can uh, achieve the 2.4 milligram doses also with an oral formulation. Marvellous, thank you. And finally, another hot topic at this year's EASD was metabolic-associated fatty liver disease, or MAFLD which occurs frequently in people with obesity and diabetes. While there continue to be no approved treatments, weight loss is associated with improvements in histology and patient outcomes for those with the condition. With this in mind, should clinicians be doing more to help patients achieve normalized body weight? If so, what would you recommend? I think this uh critical question that we will have to address in the upcoming years because we are seeing with the increase of obesity as a disease we also see the complications and here we see both NAFLD but also NASH uh, with fibrosis um, and what we now want to do is of course prevent people developing NAFLD and we know that weight loss will be very important for that uh, we want to take people who have NAFLD and revert them to normal livers but we also want to be more um, ambitious and take people with NASH 
and turn the clock back and see if we can reverse fibrosis. Now, we have known for some time with bariatric surgery that we can reverse fibrosis in patients with NASH. And the question now remains, is that predominantly weight loss or are there also weight loss independent effects? And I think that is a critical question because that will help us determine the pharmaceutical routes that we want to go in because just reducing fat in the liver is fine, but not good enough. We also want to reduce other causes of inflammation and specifically fibrosis in patients with, um, with complications of diabetes and obesity. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor LaRue. And thank you to you, our listener, for joining us for this Congress special. Was there anything that stood out to you as particularly interesting or exciting? As always, we'd love to hear from you on social media. Please tweet us at DKI Practice. And also, if you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app or recommending us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies and packages for small group learning. Thanks again, and Emma and myself look forward to joining you again in the next episode, where we will be reviewing novel therapeutics in development for type 2 diabetes.